Hey listeners, this episode was recorded before the election and, well, yeah. In the wake of all that's happened, Kelly and I decided that perhaps we need to take some time off, do some self-care, and regroup before continuing on with the podcast. So apologies for the rather unexpected hiatus, but this marks our return to regularly scheduled pub crawl podcast episodes. Thanks so much for sticking with us, and without further ado... Welcome to episode 53 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be continuing our Writer Mechanics series, and we're going to be talking about tone and mood. Yeah, so last week we talked about pacing, and this doesn't necessarily dovetail in with that, but Kelly and I discussed this before, that at least I am, willing to forgive a lot of flaws in pacing if the mood or the atmosphere of the book is just that compelling. <laughs> um, and it, for me, it's kind of a specific mood. It's not necessarily all atmosphere or mood. Um, you know, that kind of like unsettling, creepy, or magical atmosphere for me, goes a long way in forgiving a lot of other flaws, including things like flat characterization or, you know, slow pace or whatever, if I just love the mood that the book sets. So, now, do you think every book needs to have a good, a specific tone or mood? Yeah. You do? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think every book does have one. I don't. I don't think that the mood or the tone of the book is necessarily at the forefront. You know, like you were saying, there are some books that are really atmospheric, and then there are books that aren't so much. Um, I don't think that every book needs to have, you know, the tone or the mood be at the forefront or, or one of the most important things about the book or the most prominent things, I guess. Um, but I think that even if, you know... Every book, every book has a mood or a tone, even if it's not the main point. Okay. So what do you think contributes to the tone or mood or the atmosphere of a book? I think it's several things. I think one of the really big ones is the language mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the specific words, the way the sentences are formed, the images that are evoked. Um, I think language is a really big, big part of setting the mood or the tone of the book. Other things can influence it as well. You know, certainly characterization a little bit, the plot a little bit. Um, but I think if I had to pick the most influential thing, I'd probably pick language. Yeah, I would agree with you that language diction the you know mm-hmm. what words you choose contributes to an atmosphere now for me at least a lot of the books that i love that i consider particularly atmospheric are very setting heavy mm. so the one that i always think of is the night circus which has a very distinct mood and tone and atmosphere to it it's very 
I hate to use the word magical because that can mean kind of anything, but it's it's it has an almost dreamlike quality to it. And if you actually think about the plot of the Night Circus, or rather the characterization of the Night Circus, it's not all that well-rounded or nuanced. But in in my opinion, I kind of let that slide because it's not actually the point of this book. It's not a story about characters. It's a story about the circus. So Mm -hmm. I, I was able to forgive a lot of that. And a lot of a, you know, a, a very specific atmosphere or mood for me is also imagery. Mm-hmm. I think we we discussed in previous podcasts about description, about you can definitely describe too much, you can, you know, and, and things like that. So it's a very fine line to walk. Somebody who's descriptive of the setting and can evoke, you know, a, the feel of a place or their setting without being overly descriptive about said setting. And that often requires the writer to call on all sorts of different senses that's not just visual. They have, you know, calling on, you know, smell and taste and sounds and all these other senses that come into creating the setting and the atmosphere of a book. So that's kind of what I think of when I think of atmospheric books. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily always going to be the case either. There's just something about the book. The other book that I'm thinking of specifically is the is the Graces by Laura Eve, uh-huh. which has a very specific mood to it. But it doesn't necessarily have much to do with the actual setting. <laughs> so I'm trying to f- pinpoint what it is that kind of gave that atmosphere to me? I think it was in part the... Because I read that one, too. You sent me the um, the galley of that one, and I read it. And highly enjoyed it, part, mostly because of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think in that one, it, it's kind of the voice. And the voice of a book, like the voice of your, your narrator or your characters, um, is different than the tone and the mood. But the line can kind of be blurred a little bit mm-hmm. as one feeds into the other. In that book, I think the voice really helps with it. Um, I think the there's a sense in that book of like the narrator's like yearning and longing that's really palpable in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that even when she's not talking about the things that she wants you always get this feeling like there's this undercurrent of want in that book. And yeah, that that's always really palpable. One of the books that I always think of when I think of tone and mood is a novella called Who Will Run the Frog Hospital by Laurie Moore, Mm. which I love. (laughs) And this is a really slim little novella. I think, I mean, maybe 200 pages um, tops, really tiny book. Everybody should read it. It's just excellent. Laurie Moore is best known for her short stories. She has written a couple of other novels. Um, She is, I think, a master of language. I really love her language and the way that she writes her prose and the images that she creates. And Who Will Run the Frog Hospital is my favorite work of hers. And it is um, a book about a woman who is looking back on her adolescence. It's not a YA. It is an adult 
book. Um, but she's in her adulthood and she's looking back on her adolescence, the summer that she was 15 in the seventies and her relationship with her best friend at the time. And the book is largely set, you know, there's lots of different places, but it's largely set in upstate New York at their summer job when they worked at a rundown, um, amusement park that was themed around fairy tales called Storyland. Mm. And so the bulk of the action takes place in this run-down tourist trap theme park that they both work in. And she works as a ticket taker, and her best friend works as Cinderella in the park. And it's so, it's such an evocative setting. And, you know, we have all this information about the seventies and the culture at the time. And, you know, the tone is colored by her looking back and, you know, being nostalgic and thinking about this time in her life that has passed and the ways that her life has changed in the many years since then. And we've got it all framed by this really, this eerie setting where it's this magical place, but because they work there, they see behind the facade. And so to them, it's not magic. It's really mundane. And so there's this interesting duality there. And I just love the tone of this book and the mood that it creates. Yeah. That book really brings up in me feelings of nostalgia, Mm -hmm. even though clearly I, I, did not live in the seventies. Um, nope. you know, and I've never worked at an amusement park. I, yeah, like Kelly, I, I do highly recommend Hulu run the frog hospital. It's amazing. And I think the, it, it's the thing about a book with books with kind of really great distinct tone, mood or atmosphere is that evokes of an emotion in the reader. And for me, mm-hmm. when I read that, it was very much a sense of nostalgia. Almost yeah. melancholy in a way that it just like, you know, I didn't live this life, but I felt nostalgic for that life I didn't live mm-hmm. because of the power of the way Laurie Moore had written it. And a lot of it, I think, is it is the, it is voice, I think, in the case of this particular book. It's it's the way she frames the narrative, obviously, because the character is an adult looking back on her adolescence and it's. That voice and the emotions that character is, is feeling just comes through so strongly. And it's not that the narrator is telling us, I felt this. Right. I felt that. It just, it's everything. It's like a three-dimensional feeling that just comes through in the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I mean, the thing about tone, sort of the way language is in books, is that it's sort of hard to... Excuse me. Systematically tell you how to go about doing it. Mm. Right? Like, you know, if if you were to tell some, you know, like if somebody came up and asked you, oh, how do I write a book with a great atmosphere? What what advice would you give them? (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, I'm tempted to say... You either have it or you don't. And and I don't think that that's fair. I think that's an easy answer that's not um that's not entirely fair because I think that you know, with all writing there is some element of either you have it or you don't. 
but there's also an element of craft that can be practiced. And so, you know, you can improve to an extent by practicing certain things. And if I were going to tell someone how to practice and improve the tone or the atmosphere of their book, I think you want to think about it in multiple ways. So you want to think about all of your senses, right? Touch, taste, smell, sound, sight. Um, I think it's really easy when we're describing settings or when we're describing, you know, imagery or scenes to really focus on visual and talk about the way that things look. And I think that talking about the way that things feel or smell or taste, um, can really enhance the atmosphere of a place, you know, is the, is the air cold? Is it hot? You know, what are, does it smell damp? Does it smell dry? Does it smell like burning leaves? Does it smell like, what does it smell like? What does it look like? What does it taste like? You know, and really I'd start by kind of focusing on the senses and expanding that in an organic way, you don't want to, you don't want to just put in like three paragraphs describing, I walked in the door and this is what I saw and this is what I looked at and this is what I smelled. And this, like, you want to weave that kind of stuff organically throughout your, your text. We don't like info dumps. Um, but to just be aware of those things at all times, think about where your characters are, think about what's around them. Um, you know, and I think that that can go a long way toward creating an atmosphere. Yeah, I, it, yeah, when I mentioned that the feeling that Laurie Moore created in me with Who Run the Frog Hospital is like this three dimensional feeling. And I think that's definitely what an atmosphere is in a book. I do feel short stories can be really good at atmosphere because short stories don't necessarily always rely on plot the same way longer form writing does. Um, so a lot of really great short story writers are often really excellent at setting an atmosphere or a tone in the way they, that the writer describes a place or a person, um, really evokes emotions in the reader. And I think that's really kind of what it comes down to is not, this is what I mean by that first question I asked you about, does every book have a mood or an atmosphere? I think you're right that they all do. You know, it may not necessarily be in the forefront of it, but there are more, there are books that are more cerebral than others, I think. And the books that have the most atmosphere to me are the ones that are kind of emotional. Like everything is imbued with some sort of emotion. And in the case of Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, for me, it's just this like melancholy nostalgia, um, almost like slight sadness longing kind of it this is where german compound words would be very useful very helpful yeah (laughs) i think melancholy is a good one for for who will run the frog hospital it's bittersweet is not the right word but it's 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 a melancholy it's a it's a nostalgia reflecting. I mean, ultimately it's the story of this relationship that she had with her best friend that she doesn't have in the present. And it was probably like the, the defining moment in her life. And I, I at least, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I 
had those friendships that I look back on in my life that were the most intense, important thing, you know, that especially in your adolescence, especially I would say, um, for girls that some friendships that you form can be so intense and it's that intensity, um, at the same time. And the, and the story is taking place at the, at the peak of that intensity when they're beginning to break apart. Mm -hmm. And so there's this real, this real sadness and sense of loss, I think Mm -hmm. in that book. Mm -hmm. Like, I think for those who, I mean, it's not often a criticism that I will make, like something lacks an atmosphere, it's not mm-hmm. it's not like pacing, right? It's not like pacing where it's easy to sort of diagnose something feels too slow, something's lagging, this is not developed enough. Tone or atmosphere is a little bit harder to pinpoint and or to fix. Because I think I do think it's not that you have it or you don't maybe. It's that a lot of it is subconscious. It com- sort of comes out as the person is writing and you know, the reason somebody, the emotional, whatever it is that the writer is working through as they were telling the story, I think maybe that's what comes out. You know, we talked about the graces, which has this sense of, it's not even longing because longing has this implication of like, oh, I, I long for something or I, I wish. It's like a possessiveness in a way. Yeah, it's aggressive. Yeah, it's a very aggressive sort of want in it. Um, it's not in a violent sort of aggressive, but it's just this like very, you know, forward sort of, you know, very active sort of desire that's in this book that mm-hmm. makes such a moody. It's about a, a, a young girl who we don't know much about her. And that, again, the mystery of who she is kind of adds to the general atmosphere of this book. This girl who is moved to this town and there's a, a, a mysterious family called the Graces and it's, they're rumored to be witches. And she wants so badly to be in with them. She wants the glamour around this family. She wants to be part of this family. She wants to, she wants to be chosen. Yes, she wants to be chosen. And that's such a strong emotion. And it carries me through this book. Uh, mm-hmm. I know people do have mixed feelings about the Graces. And I can't actually necessarily agree, disagree with a lot of the criticisms about this book. However... The mood and the, the, the feeling in it was actually enough to carry me through other parts of the book that weren't necessarily as, as well done. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing, too, that I think that The Graces does well and that I think is important to do well is that it's important to sustain the atmosphere and tone of your book throughout. And... What I mean by this is that, so sometimes when we have really dramatic books or really, um, you know, there, there can be like levels of emotion, right? Like there's peaks and valleys, there's, you know, really tragic things and really happy things and funny things will happen to bring levity to something after something really emotional just happened. And that's all fine. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about tone. Those are all, you know, emotional trajectories that exist, you know, for your characters throughout the book. But the atmosphere should always be the same. You know, if you're writing a mystery, that mysterious atmosphere should always be there. If you're writing a comedy, that comedic tone should always be there. And I think some projects, sometimes you get this 
kind of tonal whiplash where the book will be a certain kind of tone and you'll think that you're reading a certain kind of thing and then it takes a hard turn and becomes something else. And the example actually that I'm thinking of is not a book, it's a movie. Um, but it is the movie Waitress. And uh, it stars Carrie Russell, and it was recently made into a musical uh, with um, Sarah Bareilles, uh, did the music for it, and it was on Broadway. And this movie um, has a tragic story in that the writer, Adrian Shelley, uh, was murdered halfway through the production. She had a role in the movie, and she wrote it and was heavily involved, um, and unfortunately she was tragically murdered. Um, halfway through the production. And I feel like that is evident when I watched the movie mm. because the first half of the movie is strictly comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's about this woman, this waitress, who's in an unhappy and abusive marriage and she's pregnant and she works at a diner making pies and, you know, she falls in love with this, her, her OBGYN essentially and has an affair with him, um, you know, and it, it starts off very darkly comedic. She's unhappy. Her situation is terrible. But it's funny. It's blackly funny. And then at some point, the movie just stops being funny. And it just becomes so sad and so depressing. And it's like, it's like a hard tonal shift. And I, I have no knowledge of the product. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't. My assumption is knowing the tragic backstory, my assumption has always been Adrian Shelley worked on it to this point, And then at this point, she was no longer working on it because she had been killed. And so the people that completed the movie in her stead could not divorce themselves from the tragedy surrounding the production. That's my headcanon. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but it's such a hard break between this movie being blackly funny, blackly funny. Oh my God, this is not funny anymore. This is not funny anymore. And it just, it just limps along in the end and is so sad. And even though it ends on an uplifting note, I left the theater just feeling so like depressed <laughs> because of that hard tonal shift. And I, I feel like I've seen that in books too, where a book is either trying to do two things and not integrating it well, or, the book doesn't know what kind of tone it needs to have. And so you get this kind of a whiplash where we, we cut from one thing to another and it doesn't work. Yeah. It's, um, I actually, I'm thinking of the manuscript. I actually got in submission from somebody and this book, the first probably third of it, I loved, it was this kind of weird, it had this this real mood to it. It had this kind of sense of mystery. This the protagonist was a young girl. This was not YA, but the protagonist was a young woman. She didn't. Her parents have mysteriously disappeared, and there's always there's this kind of sense. There's like this greater conspiracy or a greater mystery that behind their disappearance that she doesn't know everything. She's raised by an uncle, you know. So there's like really it's kind of this interesting. I thought initially that this was going to be kind of a coming of age story, and she's trying to you know, find the trick, you know, she's picking up pieces and clues here and there about what happened to her parents and piecing that together. Um, and now that I'm talking through it, I wanted this book essentially to be walk two moons by Sharon, Sharon Creech. <gasps> That's such a good book. I love this book. Oh my God. If, if you have not read walk two moons, go read it immediately. It's so good. I love this book. I mean, granted caveat, it does probably not do the native American part very well, if at all. 
Probably not. Uh, so it's been years since I read it. Bear, but probably not. Keep that in mind. But the story is still about a young girl who, you know, her her mother has died. So, but she's like on this road trip with her grandparents, and she, it's like it. Oh, it's just so good. It's you know, emotion. And I basically wanted this book to this book I had on submission to be like that. And then, some point beyond the the one third mark. It becomes this like weird, wacky time travel hijinks thing. Oh no! It was such a like a like I'd run into a brick wall. I was like, "What is?" This? And nothing against wacky time travel hijinks, but like you can't just you can't just make that turn. No, and I I I, I was literally like I had read one chapter and then read the next chapter and I was like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> is this the same? Did I mix up my manuscripts? It was like, basically that. Like, surely I didn't like, I mean, it, it was on my e-reader, so it couldn't, but I was like, did I somehow splice these two documents together without me knowing? Well, what is this? I was so confused. And, you know, and, and this, and the time travel thing did have to do with the young girl's parents' disappearance. And that in itself could have been really cool if it had been integrated better. If you knew you were reading a wacky time travel story. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I, it like, I, I was so confused by this. And I do remember talking to the agent afterwards, being like, I love the first third of this book. But <laughs> I couldn't get over, you know, the, the hard tonal shift that happens in it. And, you know, the agent's like, yeah, yeah, we were aware. <laughs> we were just hoping somebody could help her with it. <laughs> um and it is a lot of things like I don't know how to fix that because I don't necessarily know what the writer's aim. I didn't know what the writer's aims were. Like, what sort of story did you want to tell? I know what story I wanted to read based on the first third. I wanted Walk Two Moons, basically. And, mm. but that's, but if the writer can't pinpoint the sort of book that they wanted to tell, that's why I think you have tonal shifts because they, you know, they're not sure that, you know, they, they, they want it's like everything in the kitchen sink basically in the book. Yeah. So, so I think you have to be intentional about tone more than it, it's such a weird thing to like to say like more than, you know, plot or whatever you have to set out, I think say, this is a specific tone that I want to take with my book. And maintain that tone throughout your book. A lot of this may come up in in your revisions, you know, like, you know, to kind of get the tone in line and everything. But at least for me, I do, now that I think about it, maybe not consciously, consciously at the front of my brain, set out with a tone in mind when I write my books. Uh-huh. But it's definitely there. Um. You know, and, you know, for the middle grade I've been working on, I had a very specific tone I wanted in mind. I wanted this kind of arch, slightly ironic voice. You know, I I wanted that kind of a mood and atmosphere, like a slight hint of whimsy, but not too much whimsy and more kind of ironic or wry kind of a tone. And then for Winter Song, I wanted something kind of eerie or kind of unsettling a little bit. And, you know, that sort of ambiguous I guess maybe that was kind of the mood I had in mind when I was going like going for my book or writing that book I didn't necessarily have that like I'm going to sit down I'm going to write a book with a mystery but I had a very specific tone in mind and that's what I kept in mind as I was writing and I do think Mm -hmm. that is important like when you're telling a story you settle on how you want it told 
if you think about a movie and like just certain tones movies take, you can have basically what is the same plot or premise, but the tone and the execution of it will make it different. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with books. The tone and the execution of a book will differentiate two books with very similar plots and premises. Like, one can be kind of a straightforward adventure story, and the other one could be much more philosophical. You know, the, that sort of tone is is as important to a book as a lot of the other more easily learned craft bits of writing, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas for, like, exercises to maybe practice tone? I don't know about exercises to practice. I mean, I I mean, I guess you could, you know, do the thing I mentioned before with rundown of all the senses or whatever. But I think that, you know, the things that I can think of that are tangible things that you can do to improve your tone are, of course, to read, Mm -hmm. um, read things in that tone, do your tonal research. Um, I just have been doing that recently. Partly it was the graces, partly it was watching practical magic. Um, I'm writing a witchy book and so I've been, you know, absorbing witchy sources. Um, so I think that can help exposing yourself to that kind of atmosphere. I think, um, music helps a lot of people Mm -hmm. with, the Mm -hmm. tone of their books. You know, a lot of people, I don't write to a playlist, um, but I know that a lot of people do. And a lot of people are inspired by listening to music and that helps them set a tone because it puts them in the mood that they want the book to be in. Mm -hmm. And if you can put yourself in that headspace, then when you are writing, that can kind of come out. Um, you know, I know some people will create Pinterest boards too, cause they're really visual people. And so they'll create a Pinterest board that can really be kind of like a mood board for your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, I think you can do all kinds of things like that. Anything that you can do to get yourself in that headspace, I think will help you nail down the proper atmosphere. Yeah. I, the music's a good one. I also don't write to music. My, process of coming up with a playlist actually always comes like halfway through revision <laughs> as, a, as a measure of procrastination. It's a stalling technique. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, if I, if I'm like, it, I'm like, yeah, I'm totally working cause I'm compiling a playlist mm, that, you know, completely, absolutely. Um, but I think you are right. I think music does definitely set a mood and helps people. Um, I do, Use Pinterest, although not really, it's not really a medium or a, you know, a website that works for me, but I know people who love Pinterest and who are much more Mm -hmm. visual and can kind of call together all these images that, you know, are evocative of what they're trying to go for. In terms of, of exercises, I was, you know, thinking like if you were to describe a room, so like make a list of five different emotions, grief, um, joy, you know, mystery or, you know, horror, you know, kind of like sort of like an overall mood or, you know, come up with like maybe not five, five is a lot, but like three, maybe three, and then describe a room in that sort of tone or with that atmosphere. Right, like the same room in each one. You know, you know, the sense, you know, if, if a room is, you know, you describe a room, we'll describe, um, a living room with, a rocking chair in it. And if you describe grief, then 
this room had a, you know, if, if, you know, belonged to someone's grandmother or something that had just passed or, you know, there's like, there's a lot of ways you can kind of bring in that grief or sadness into the description of a place that isn't necessarily, it felt sad. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. I was so sad. Yeah. Um, you know, the way the light looks in the room, the way it smelled still, the, the perfume still lingers or, you know, the, the kind of scent of faded flowers, like even saying something like that, you know, the scent of faded flowers and old lace that ev- evokes an yeah, image. Yeah, it's evocative. Um, so that's, I think that's kind of an exercise that I think people who are having difficulty with kind of atmosphere, mood or tone, I think that does help. And, you know, getting the practice of how to do that will help kind of guide and shape tone going forward in all of your writing. But um, so that was kind of the thought that I had, if you guys, because it is easier, like I said, for other craft issues, you know, characterization and pacing and all those sorts of story elements are easier to troubleshoot and are easier to teach and are easier to fix um, but because tone, like voice, is kind of an ineffable quality that infuses every aspect of writing. It's not just one thing or another that can be picked out and fixed. It just infuses absolutely everything. So it's harder to teach in, in that respect. So, I, but I don't. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that I don't think you can't practice it. I think you can absolutely mm-hmm. practice it as a skill. It's just harder to teach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Do we have any last thoughts or anything like that about tone or mood or any examples? I don't know. I mean, for me, I often find that I am reading for mood. I, I select books according to what I'm in the mood for. Oh, I'm saying, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's really difficult for me, you know, especially with library holds, but when I have no control over what becomes available when, you know, they're all books that I want to read. But if the wrong one becomes available at a time that doesn't sync with my mood, mm. I I usually won't even, I'll just return it back into the queue so the next person can get it. Because I know that my matching my mood is so integral to my enjoyment of a book and a book that I would normally enjoy if I read it at the right, in the right mind frame. Um, I won't enjoy as much if I'm, if I'm not synced up in that way. So I read for mood a lot. I I will seek out books that I think are going to give me the tonal atmospheric experience that I want to have at that given time. Um, and sometimes that, that mood is nothing, you know, I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, I want to read a a beach read with, you know, something light and fluffy, you know, light and fluffy is a, is a tonal thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and so sometimes I want something, you know, I want catharsis. So I want something, you know, that's going to make me cry. That's going to punch me in the feels. Um, you know, sometimes I want to be taken on an epic journey. So I read for mood a lot. And I think a lot of people do, whether consciously or subconsciously. And I think that knowing the mood of your book can also be an effective way to promote it and sell it. Knowing the mood of your book can come in really handy when you're writing your query letter and you're also infusing your query letter with that same tone. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be really important because again, the atmosphere is not so much, it's not a word count. 
you know, it's a feeling. Mm -hmm. And so if you can infuse your very short query with that tone, that's going to be even more effective than a query with that, that doesn't have that element. So I think that, you know, figuring out the tone and the atmosphere of your book is, is a good thing and can be really helpful. And I think that people read for that. I do. I absolutely read for mood. I mean, the other thing is like, regardless of the mood I'm in, if I trust a writer, yeah, I, I trust that writer to put me in whatever mood that writer wants to put me in, regardless of what Mm -hmm. I'm personally looking for. But if there's nothing especially pressing that I'm looking forward to, and I'm just like, I feel like reading something, then I'll generally identify, well, I feel like reading, you know, and then I'll kind of pinpoint the mood that I'm going for. And so when I'm looking for book recommendations, I often ask, like, can somebody recommend me blah, blah, blah. And often this is where I use comp titles, books that feel like, you know, X, Y, Z, or a book that feels like this movie or, you know, that kind of, and, you know, those are kind of ineffable qualities, you know that are is hard to necessarily describe so specifically like if i said i wanted a, a book that read like Shaun of the dead which is one of my favorite movies ah oh, so good so good and but you can't just recommend me any old zombie book because that's not mm-hmm. the tone of Shaun of the dead um you know i want something kind of funny but like darkly funny um you know just kind of a little bit cheeky but also sincere, you know, those are all the kind of, that's Mm -hmm. like the tone and the mood this movie has. And yes, it does have zombies in it, but that's not necessarily what I'm looking for when I, when it comes to like, if I say I want a book like Shaun of the Dead. Um, so, which I do want a book like Shaun of the Dead now, (laughs) now that I've put it out into the universe. If somebody knows a book like that, definitely send it my way because that sounds like a great book. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think people do, whether consciously or not, mood does absolutely affect what they read, how they read, you know, their emotional reaction to a book. Because there are definitely plenty of books that I can recognize on an objective level that this is a really well-crafted, well-written book. But if I just wasn't in the mood for it, you know, I yeah. I can I can judge it objectively on it on its qualities and merit as, as a piece of craft, but mood, if it's not, if it's a mismatch or if I don't think the mood or atmosphere is really working, even though the rest of the book is meticulously crafted, then it's kind of a disappointment for me often. And there's a book I read recently, which I won't name, but I remember like, it's pretty well written and I did like it, but there was something kind of off about it and I couldn't quite figure it out until I was talking with, with Kelly and with another friend of mine and I was like, you know what? I wish this book had been a middle grade. <laughs> and once I pinpointed yeah. that, I was like, that's why I'm not loving this. Because then I thought, okay, if this was a middle grade, then the romance would be so much better. And then the, you know, the whimsy would kind of fit more tonally with the kind of serious parts. Like I was like, oh, this would be so much better if it was a middle grade novel. But that is not the book that got published. Um, but in, like I said, it's, very well written. It's very interesting and it's well crafted. It just wasn't a match for me on that front. So yeah, I do think it is something that people don't consciously think about, but I do think it Mm -hmm. is important. So do we have anything else we want to talk about in terms of mood or atmosphere? I think that covers it. All right. 
so then we can move on. Uh, what are you working on? I'm doing NaNoWriMo. Yay! <laughs> I'm, attemp- I'm attempting. Um, it's so funny because when I think back on this time last year, the this podcast was just a little baby podcast. It was like brand new, and we did our little NaNoWriMo series. You know, only you know within the first ten episodes or something. I want to think. Um, so I am attempting NaNoWriMo. I attempted last year very publicly on this podcast and completely failed. Um, I don't even think I made it to 10,000 words, although maybe I did. I can't remember. Um, and I'm never going to go back and look because (laughs) that, that book is, I think was never a book to begin with. Um, but this time I am sort of cheating. I know that, you know, in theory for NaNoWriMo, you're supposed to create a new project and, you know, go from start to finish. Oh, whatever. You can be a NaNoWriMo. That's me. I am going to be a nano rebel. I have uh, pulled out my witchy YA that I've been working on since the dawn of time. And I'm going to try to hit a 50,000 word count in the month. I'm already behind because, uh, what is it, like roughly 1,600 words per day you're supposed to do if you're writing every day. I got 1,000 yesterday, so I was a little short. And I haven't started writing yet today, so that's what I've got to do. 1,000 is still better than nothing. It is. It is much better than nothing. Um, so I'm doing that and it's, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I I feel like I will always, until I write the final word in this book, which someday is going to happen and I hope it's going to happen, you know, if not this month then very shortly thereafter. Um, it's, I mean, it's nano, so it's garbage. It's a mess, but it is, I think productive garbage. At least the plot is moving along. Last time at Nano, I was doing things like describing every bottle on a spice rack because I couldn't figure out what to write. So my character was just like standing looking at a spice rack and describing like each one of 30 different spices there Um, for no reason. This character wasn't like a chef or a baker or anyone who needed to think about spices. (laughs) It's like I said, it's, it's the medicine cabinet scene in Franny and Zuri. Yeah, it is. It is, which I love that scene, which is so horrible. Um, but I love that book. But, um, but yeah, so this at least is still garbage, but at least it's garbage with momentum. Let's say that much. Garbage can be um, fixed. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So yeah, so that is what I'm working on. I am also working, well, I'm working on book two for Nano essentially to just get yeah. power through this draft. Um, by the time this podcast goes up, our election will have been will have will be over. But oh my god, oh my god! I I won't lie that it's been stressing me out so and unbelievably it has been affecting my ability to write. <laughs> I'm not an anxious person either, so this is a very new feeling for me. Um, so I'm just using Nano as it's like okay, you know I you know I wrote Winter Song during Nano Rimo, so. I can do it. I've done it before. And I thought, okay, if I did the first book this way, then I can do book two this way. And it's just kind of trying to get me back into that headspace. If I can pull it out of the anxiety spiral that it's currently in, um, which is really hard right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So what have you been reading? I read Crooked Kingdom. I did. I did. I bought it. 
um, and now I, so I bought it, um, on Kindle and now I need to go back and I need to buy six of crows because I need to have both because I'm funny like that. No, I'm like um, that too. I'm a, I'm a completionist. I read six of crows as a library book and now I've got to have both. Yeah. I broke down. I bought, I bought it. And, and, and also by the way, um, I love buying books. I, I, I don't mean to make it sound like purchasing a book is a hardship or is, um, is something that I don't want to do. Um, I do buy your books, people. If you can't buy your books, uh, if your budget won't allow for it, then do go to the library because those still, um, the library purchased that book and that's a sale for the author. And that's great. Um, I do do, I would probably say about 70% of my reading through the library, but I bought Cricket Kingdom because I just could not wait <laughs> any longer. I had to have it. I had to read it. It was so good. Mm. Feeling. It was so good. It was like, it was everything that I wanted, but it wasn't like, it's not in that sense that I knew it was going to happen. It was just like, when I walked away from that book, I felt like, I felt like everything that I wanted, every last desire had been wrung out of those pages. And I just felt so satisfied and devastated. Um, yeah, mm. it was, it was a good book. Is a good book. I did go back and forth a little bit, and I won't. I won't say anything about it because I'm sure there's people out there who haven't read it. But um, I did go back and forth a little bit about whether or not I wanted the two very final scenes to be swapped so that we ended on a different scene than we ended on. But I, every time I think about it, I go back and forth, and I'm like, nope, I love the way that it was, and then I'm like, well, I wish it was switched, and then I'm like, nope, I love the way that it was. I can't so. even remember what the last two scenes were. Ah, we'll talk about it when we. Yeah, stop we'll talk recording. about it later. I mean, I read that <laughs> so fast. I like. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that book I, down. I would have read it in one day if not for the fact that I had a child. Um, I read it in two, which I can't remember the last time that I was, you know, able to tear through a book in one day. I I used to be able to read like several books a day, but um, unfortunately, I gave birth to a human, and now I'm like responsible <laughs> for <her>. so. <laughs> So I can't just do whatever I want anymore. I read it within 24 hours though. And it was, I mean, I just, I just could not put it down. I told David at one point, I was like, I have like three chapters left, David, and I'm going to leave and shut the door to the bedroom and you're just going to deal with the kid until I'm finished. (laughs) And then I'll come back when I'm done. Um, So yes, I read Crooked Kingdom and it was everything that I hoped for. Oh, Yay. Mm-hmm. I I haven't read anything. I was on vacation last week, so I didn't really have time to read much. Um, and audiobook-wise, I finished up all my audiobooks, so I don't really have anything new. And, you know, we are kind of winding down November and December, and publishing tends to be much slower in terms of new releases. December in particular mm-hmm. is, like, empty. It's like no man's land of, of publishing, really. Um so I don't have I I didn't read anything, so yeah, nothing nothing new on my end. Um, any off menu recommendations? I don't think there's been anything off menu. I've been watching the World Series. I like baseball. I'm rooting for the Cubs. I'm I am a Red Sox fan, uh, but I got to root for the Cubs because if we broke our curse, we gotta let the Cubs break theirs. <laughs> um, and yeah, I haven't really done too much of anything else. A week from Saturday, I will be seeing Hamilton Yay! in Chicago. 
I'm so excited. I actually can't believe that it's here. I have already had several nightmares where I have left the tickets at home and we get to Chicago and I don't have the tickets. <laughs> so yeah, very excited to see that. But other than that, Hamilton, we recommend Hamilton, you know, every day. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much always assume that's our recommendation, but um, but I think that's really it. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, like I said, I was on vacation, so we went to Disney World last week. Um, it was just funny because last year I went to Disneyland, so this year we went to Disney World. Um, but we did go with a group of friends, um, who had a timeshare that they offered to us for free. So, and that timeshare came with free passes to Disneyland as well. So we're like, ah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Why not? Um, so we went and we also went to Harry Potter world. Oh, so jealous. <laughs> um, at Disney, they, this time of year, they have something called the food and wine festival at Epcot. If you guys have not been to Epcot, it's the park that's sort of like half of it is like future technology stuff. And then like the other half is like the world showcase. So it's like Disney fied versions of like 11 different countries. Mm-hmm. And so the, the food and wine festival is basically the, the 11 countries that are already at Epcot plus like little pop-up booths of other countries have food. That's like maybe two or three, little dishes per country that are, is representative of the, the country's cuisine and, um, as well as some alcoholic beverages. So Mm. that's like representative of each country. So we went and we did the food and wine festival and it was myself, Mark, uh, our friends who offered us the timeshare and, and our friend's sister. So there's five of us and we made it through 24 countries I had to take pause for Brazil and France because I was going to be sick. <laughs> just like so much food. And I think the only way to do it is if you go with a group of people so you could like try sample everything. Yeah, you have a bite of everything. Of everything, yeah. essentially. Um, and we were also really drunk because we had a drink per country. Um, but it was it was excellent. It was really cute because the Disney Disney gave us like a little passport for each country with like stickers you can put on and like little check marks for each of the dishes that you've tried. Cute. It was very cute. It was delicious. And uh, we were super drunk. So we did that. We went to magic kingdom. We did, you know, a couple rides there and we went to, um, what used to be MGM studios and is now Hollywood studios. Um, we did that. Then we went to universal studios to go to Harry Potter world. And I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I thought it was, like, a whole other theme park, but it actually is just, like, a section of Universal Studios. It's not its own thing. Um, so we went, and basically I just went and bought a whole bunch of merchandise. Like, I didn't care about anything else. I was like, I'm going to buy my house stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, we stopped at Honey Dukes, and Mark got a thing of Birdie bought. Birdie bots every flavor jelly beans, and so we were all eating them, and we're like looking at see what the flavors are listed. My first jelly bean was vomit. Oh, I, I, like <laughs> I ate it, and I was cause it was and okay. Just to let you guys know, if you guys ever do buy Birdie bots every flavor jelly beans, vomit is orange, so avoid the orange ones. And I was so disappointed because I do like orange flavored jelly beans. And so I was like, oh, that's an orange one. I'm going to eat it. And I was like, I was like, 
and I'm and I'm I'm chewing this, and and Mark is looking at me like he's like, is everything okay? And I was like, no, this this is this is vomit. It like it. I can't even describe to you that it because it literally tastes like bile. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, I'm done. I'm never eating bread butts every flavor beans again. I did have soap after that, and soap tasted like soap, but it actually wasn't bad the way vomit was. Bad. Right. It's just like, oh god. Um, but it was it was definitely fun. You know, the everyone who all the clerks who run Hogsmeade stores and everything are absolutely in character. Um, there is a we we went to the park that had Hogsmeade and Hogwarts because there's two separate parks. One is Diagon Alley and the other one is Hogsmeade slash Hogwarts. We went to Hogwarts, and there is a ride inside Hogwarts Castle and the line was fairly short and it's like the only time in my life where I was like, I wish the line was longer because it takes you to the castle and you know, the portraits talk and I just wanted to listen to them banter and what they're saying. And you just, you get to see all the cool things in Hogwarts castle and you know, but the line kept moving forward. So I was like, no, no, I want to, you know, to, to see what else is in this room. So it was fun. So if you guys ever make it down to Harry Potter world, I do recommend that. I had the frozen butter beer, which was delicious. Um, so yeah, that is my off-menu recommendation. I didn't really do much else except travel and sleep, so. <laughs> All right. Nice. So I don't think we have any questions, do we? Um, I did have one. Okay. And, of course, now I can't find it because it was like a million notifications back. <clears throat> but this was okay sorry this is a question from Erin Bay and she said I was wondering do you have any tips or tricks on how to write beautiful prose hmm tips or tricks on how to write beautiful prose I think that writing beautiful prose is a balance between language and clarity. Um, you know, you want to write beautiful prose, but you want to write beautiful prose that actually makes sense and that people understand. So I think a lot of it is word choice. I think, you know, even substituting one word in a sentence can really change the tone, um, or the, the, you know, the feel of a sentence or really elevate the language. Um, so sometimes I think, you know, you can just pause and think about your word choice. Um, you know, read prose that you think is beautiful, read poetry, which is all about the economy of language. Um, you know, the more you expose yourself to that, the better. But, you know, I, I don't know that there's any real way to teach someone to write beautiful prose because I think beautiful, you know, it's subjective. What what I find to be really evocative, beautiful prose might be different than what someone else thinks. Um, you don't want to get lost in the language and have no idea what is actually being said, which I think 
is a very big problem with people who focus too much on their language. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you get to the end of a really beautiful sentence and you think, oh my God, that was so lush and beautiful. And I have no idea what it means. Um, so, I mean, you know, I think read, read things that expand your vocabulary, read poetry, read, read plays, read novels, um, find beautiful language and absorb as much of it as you can. And, you know, and, and be thoughtful about, about the words that you select. Yeah. I, as Kelly said, beautiful prose is subjective and, the irony is that the prose that I tend to find the most beautiful is prose that I just don't write naturally. I tend to find very kind of spare, elegant writing the most beautiful. And that is not the way I write at all. Um, my natural voice is very purple, very overblown. And, you know, it's that's just the way I write. And that's the way I write naturally. And it, for me, trying to get down to that spare elegant writing is a goal, but there is a little bit of a, of a style thing that, you know, this is not my natural way of writing. So I'm not going to force myself into a style of prose that isn't necessarily true to who I am as a writer or an artist. Cause that, that way is stilted, right? If I try to write like Hemingway or Fitzgerald. Uh, it's going to come across either as pastiche, which I am pretty good at. I, I can absorb the way a lot of people write and, and affect that style, but it's not naturally mine. And so if I try and write like that, it becomes very stilted and it just, so that's kind of the danger. So I think beautiful prose is not necessarily just language. It's specific to the writer, you know, mm-hmm. There, there are just one or two lines in books that I find particularly beautiful and a book that's not necessarily entirely beautiful, but one or two is just written with such precision and skill. Those searing images, you know, I think everybody can think of a line or an image with a book that has stayed with you mm-hmm. um, because it was written in such a unique and specific way. And And yeah, you know, I think beauty... Is, is in the eye of the beholder. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean. And it's, you find your own voice and you, you work on your voice and you work on clarity in your language. But that style that comes through is what makes it beautiful and it what makes it yours. So I wouldn't necessarily worry over much. Mm-hmm about prettying yeah, your language trust up. trust that someone will connect with it. You mm-hmm. know, someone out there will connect with your style and your voice and find that beautiful. And I think trying to imitate another style will probably do more harm than good because you'll lose whatever it is about your natural writing style that is authentic. And I think the mimicry will kind of make it seem hollow. So I think JJ's right. I think working, you know, on your own style, on your own craft and, and just trying to hone that to be the best that it can be is probably better than seeking some ideal of 
beautiful prose that doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to directors and things like that, specifically auteurs of film, you know, directors have a very distinct voice or style. Guillermo del Toro is one of my favorite directors, and he's definitely got a very distinct style. Tim Burton, before the excess, has ran away with him, and he couldn't stop casting Johnny Depp in all of his movies. Uh, had, again, a very distinct style and tone and mood to a lot of his films, and... You know, I connected very deeply with that sort of, you know, goth sensibility, but also kind of whimsical goth sensibility, a little bit tinged with a little bit of sadness and feeling like you're an outsider. Guillermo del Toro is not really that delicate. He's kind of the opposite of subtle. He is like super over the top, but I love it. (laughs) You know, anybody who's seen Pacific Rim has, you can't call that man subtle by any means, or Crimson Peak, which is another movie he he did that I love. Not a subtle film, but I, it just works for me. And it just is such stunning images, too. So, you know, it, it a lot of it, as we said before, is subjective. So find what works for you and work on the craft of your writing. And by craft, we mean clarity. And I really do think that that is something that doesn't get emphasized enough in writing classes because I feel like there is an emphasis on making something sound pretty but not necessarily on making something understood yeah I can't I really can't overstate how many you know in my decade in publishing how many manuscripts or query letters I have read where I literally do not understand the information that I just read and I can go back and like read each word in the sentence progressively and still not come away with any understanding of what is trying to be communicated. It's, it's a problem. And I think that, I mean, we do see it. We're not, we're not talking about it because it's non-existent. I mean, that's a real issue. Yeah. All right, so then we can go on to the next segment. All right. This review is from Author Cat. Informative, interesting, inspiring. I am a writer, a reader, and a lover of all kinds of media, and this podcast feeds all those parts of me. I listened first to learn more about the industry and writing. I got exactly what I wanted and more. The format of the show is easy to follow as Kelly and JJ discuss the themes of the episode. It feels like joining to old friends for a dynamic conversation. They go off on tangents, but I'm always right there with them as they always have a great point to make, and I can always (laughs) learn new things from the paths they take in the show. I didn't know I'd come away from the show with so many new things to read and watch. I love their off-menu feature where they talk about other media that they're devouring, Stranger Things, Hamilton... I also really enjoy them as hosts. They're both obviously so knowledgeable, but they're also fans underneath it all, and I adore that. As a writer, I think it's so important to be a fan of the genre you write, and it's so clear that JJ and Kelly love what they do. Thank you for this amazing podcast. It has gotten me through writer's block and low times and been my buddy when I have had personal successes. Every episode is amazing. Also, the production quality is really great. Kat, thank you so much. Um, I'm so glad that you're able to hang in there for our many, many tangents. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also glad to hear that we do get to a point at the end of them eventually. (laughs) (laughs) 
And, um, and I do love what I do and I am a huge fan of books, of authors, of the things that I love. Um, and I know that JJ is too. And so much of our friendship was formed on shared fandom and shared love of different things. And so I think we um, actually connected over Harry Potter fan fiction, but Mm -hmm. not even online, like in person. Yes. (laughs) In person, JJ and I had both read the really obscure fan fiction called Hermione's World by Mina, (laughs) which I think is still online. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and so yeah, huge fans of, of our of what we do, of our industry, of books, of stories. Um, and so I am glad that that comes through because I think, you know, we, we joke a lot that we are all about the tough love here. And I know that sometimes we, um, we can bring people down (laughs) with the, with the realities and the peaks behind the curtain, um, with some of this stuff, but at the heart of it, you know, we really do love books and love stories. And so I'm glad that, that, that at least comes through to balance all of the, you know, secret horrors that we also unleash upon you. Yeah. And, and, you know, on a personal selfish thing, thank you for the compliment about the quality. <laughs> yep. A hundred percent. That again is all JJ. In case you guys don't know, JJ does all of our editing and writes all of our show notes and generally makes this thing go and helps me with all of my technical issues. So <laughs> Kudos to you. It is more than deserved. The podcast literally would not exist without JJ. So, yes. As with so much of our friendship, it's generally me be like, hey, you feel like doing this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. JJ is. She's always the kind of person who's like, you know what? I just woke up today and I decided I want to do a thing. So I'm going to do a thing. Do you want to do a thing with me? And it's so funny because I've had like a front row seat to that throughout our friendship. I remember when we were roommates coming home one day and you were like on the couch knitting a little sweater for Whiteheart. And I was like, (laughs) I didn't know you knew how to knit. And you were like, yeah, I just decided I wanted to to knit a sweater for Whiteheart. So I taught myself how to knit. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Like you didn't know how to knit this morning. (laughs) And by the end of the day, Whiteheart had a sweater. And that was just always, you know, you woke up one day and you were like, I'm going to go skydiving. And, um, and that's something that I appreciate on a personal level in our friendship, because I am not the kind of person who wakes up and decides to do something. (laughs) And so in that way, I, I greatly benefit from that, from that influence. So. Aw, well, thank you. That is all for this week. Next week, we are going to be talking about sentence craft and get really down to the nitty gritty on writing. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. 
Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.